Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Alex Chavez from Columbia University. Uh, he's one of the prominent scientists in the field of CRISPR technology. Um, he was a postdoc with actually uh, Dr. George Church at Harvard University, who's uh, the father of uh, genomics, and he now runs his own lab at Columbia University. So, uh, Dr. Chavez, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah, I'll just call you Alex. So, so yep. tell me about um, CRISPR and uh, its compatriot Cas9. What what is it for people that don't know? And then we'll get into the the uses of it. Yeah, so uh, CRISPR-Cas9 is basically a genome protection system that's uh, present in a lot of microbes, and they use it to prevent foreign DNA and uh, other nucleic acids from getting into their genomes and doing bad things. And people about five years ago realized that we could actually use it, take this system out of bacteria and put it into human cells and have it do all sorts of cool stuff like editing genes. So bacteria use it... Um... Do they use it to edit their own genes, or how do they use it again? Yeah, so bacteria use it to as a defense system. So basically, well, bacteria want to protect themselves from things like other virus, like viruses that want to try to parasitize them. And so the way it works mm. with bacteria is that they take little pieces of the virus's genome, and they then use that as a targeting system. Um, so they take the little piece of the virus genome, they then complex it to Cas9, and then Cas9 can go and hunt down any other copies of that sequence. Um, and so it's sort of like Cas9 is sort of like a easily targetable missile against whatever sequence you want. And so bacteria learned that this is a pretty good system and it seemed to make bacteria healthier. And so it spread throughout like 50% of uh, bacterial populations. And so it's what they use as sort of their version of an adaptive immune system. Um, and because it can be programmed mm -hmm. by simple DNA sequence, you can target it to whatever you want. And so people realize, well, could I target it to human genes? And it turns out you can. You just have to put all the machinery inside the human cells and no problem. It'll go and it'll attack whatever gene you want. So when a bacteria is attacked by something, um, it'll go and is it sequencing the attacker's genes and then um, incorporating some of those genes into its own genes, or what's the mechanism by which it defends itself? Yeah, so the mechanism's still being fully fleshed out, but the general concept is that uh, the virus injects its genome. Um, Cas9 is actually, CRISPR-Cas is actually not just um, one gene, it's multiple genes. And there are some genes that are specifically made to take little pieces of foreign DNA and to um, essentially turn them into weapons that Cas9 can use. They basically like take a little chunk out of the virus genome and they then put it into what's called a CRISPR array. And now that array will re-express that gene, but compatible with Cas9 using it to home to wherever it wants to go. Huh. So they're taking, all right, so I guess it's like a vaccine. They're taking a little bit of the virus. Um, yep. At the very least, they can use that to uh, alert the organism to the presence of that virus again, or the presence of it, period. And then how does this help the, the organism um, defend itself against the virus or counteract its effects? Yeah, so um, basically, I think everything you said is a nice way to think about it. Um, and so if Cas9 now knows that this sequence here belongs to a virus, what it's going to do is every single time that piece of sequence comes into the cell, Cas9 is going to go to it, it's going to bind to it, and it's going to cut it. And if a genome is cut, then it's sort of not very functional because <clears throat> imagine you have a gene and now it's split in half. 
it's not going to make the full gene. And so the virus is sort of SOL. It's in trouble. Um, and so basically, hmm. Cas9 is a very effective system at that. So that's interesting. Is that a normal way that uh, organisms defend against um, viruses by by cutting up their genes, or you know, and I've yeah. seen you know cells engulfing other cells to kill yeah. them. Um, yeah, is this, this is like a common. very common mechanism. Yeah. So I mean, um, CRISPR-Cas, I guess, is a fancy version of what are called restriction, uh, like things like restriction endonucleases. So what what actually kickstarted the whole molecular biology revolution, um, at least one of the main things, is the ability to be able to copy and paste DNA sequences. And so um, the way that people actually were able to do that way back when is they saw that um, bacteria had these enzymes that had very particular sequences they liked to cut, and they were called restriction endonucleases. And so let's say they always cut at this, if they saw the six base pair sequence of, let's say, A, 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 it would always cut it. And so now if a foreign sequence came in that had those six A's, it would get cut. But the problem that the bacteria always face is, how do I not cut myself, right? Because by random chance, in your genome, you're also going to have some A's. And so the way that the, um, these, these systems work is that um, the enzyme uh, have both a cutter and a methylator. And so the methylator it goes is it goes into all the different DNA within that organism and it methylates some of the A's. And so when that happens, those A's are now uh, resistant to then do the restriction enzyme cutting. But when a virus comes in, its A's aren't methylated, and so it gets cut. So like this idea of kind of cutting adversaries that come in that you don't want is kind of it's it's used quite a bit. It's, it's very effective, you know. Nothing beats destroying something. Right. Yeah. How how effective is it compared to other mechanisms of defense? Uh, I mean, you can have a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand fold difference in susceptibility to phage if you have one of these systems or not. Hmm. You know, so, like, yeah, basically, you can handle ten times, like ten thousand times more particles than the next dude um, if you have them. I mean, that's why these things are so prevalent within nature. Uh, some once once nature solves a problem really well, it's gonna propagate, hmm. right? Because the dude that's got that, he starts to grow like crazy, and then if by random chance some other guys they will take that piece of DNA up and make it useful to himself, boom, once again, he's become more fit. So it just kind of like propagates forward. And what you actually find in nature is that a lot of these systems tend to like hang out together. So you actually have like restriction of the nuclease systems I just talked about. They're chilling in very close proximity to things like CRISPR, which are chilling next to other sort of defense systems. And so now what happens is that whole chunk of DNA kind of gets mobilized all at once when it jumps to another organism. And so that organism becomes like ultra resistant. Mm. I don't know if this is possible or not, but can only a living organism uh, utilize this method of defense, or could we make medicines that have the same effect that they cut the DNA of the attacker and uh, you know they alert an organism to it and act? You know, uh, again, I'm, I don't have the right words. Yeah, for yeah. It, but. yeah, yeah. So you're basically saying, can you can you use CRISPR in the same defense mechanism at which it's used in its natural setting? So in bacteria, it's used that when something nasty comes in, it's going to cut it. Could we like put that into humans? Is that the thought process? Yeah. And, and do you need a living organism behind um, behind it in order to use the uh, in order to use this technology, or could it uh, could it just be used? I don't know. As just as just a pure medicine. Um, slightly confused. Um, so, are you saying can you just purify the enzyme out and will it do its thing? Is that the question? Yes, yes, that's a better yes. understanding. Yes. yes, thank you. Yeah, you can you can purify out castine protein. You can purify out. It, it needs that like a kind of the homing sequence. So you need to have that also. But if you take castine plus that homing sequence and you put it together inside of a test tube, and then you feed it whatever, whatever nucleic acid you want, it's going to go and it's going to hunt it down no problem. It's just an enzyme, mm -hmm. right? And enzymes function inside of cells and outside of cells as long as you know the conditions they like. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it totally works. Okay. 
So you can actually even use it to do like cloning to build DNA sequences together in vitro, like in test tubes. Wow. Okay. What um what kind of bacteria use uh you know the CRISPR DNA cutting system or do all of them? And you know when when science talks about this, uh, what kind of bacteria are they studying to use this from? Yeah, I mean, so CRISPR, so CRISPR systems, there are multiple types of them. Um, I don't know the latest number, but it's something like def, like over probably 50 to 80, something like 50 to 80 percent probably have these systems of some sort within their genomes um, of, of bacteria. Of archaea, wow. it's a little bit less. Um, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but they're, they're very, very prevalent. Do people have these systems, or they're they're only no. in? No. Uh... Yeah, yeah. It sadly it stopped at. Uh, it don't pass single cell organisms, and it really doesn't pass bacteria and archaea. So yeast don't have them either. They they seem to have been lost. Um, why that is? I mean, you could hypothesize that um, in a if you know if we had those in a human cell, this thing has to be like hyper specific, right? Because you basically want it to only attack a virus and don't attack yourself. And in the case of mm. a human, if it attacks itself and attacks a gene that's supposed to prevent cancer, that's a bad, bad thing. In addition, we have other mechanisms we use for actual immune defense. So, you know, maybe that's why we don't have them. Maybe there are other reasons. Um, you know, CRISPR is very efficient in bacteria. It's much less efficient in human cells. Um, but in general, they just don't exist past um, bacteria and archaea. So could this be used as a medicine for people? And how would it work if you did that? Yeah, so people are interested in using Cas9 too. So, like I said, when Cas9 can go, normally when Cas9 is a bacteria, it goes and it uh, there's a virus that comes in and it cuts that virus's genome. Well, there are some cases in people where we want to cut certain genes in their genome. So, for example, um, HIV uh, causes a chronic uh, viral infection, which eventually, if not treated, will lead to immune deficiency and death. And the way that uh, HIV actually gets inside of your immune cells is it uses a receptor called CCR5. And so if you can mutate CCR5 within a patient such that the receptor is no longer expressed, no HIV can't infect its, its immune cells anymore and the patient becomes resistant. And so there are a lot of people are interested in applying something like CRISPR to do that sort of immunogenesis. So take the patient's immune cells out, use CRISPR to cut their CCR5 gene, and then put it back into the patient. And now, boom, they're resistant to HIV. Okay, so it's more modifying the, um, the patient's DNA in response to a threat versus uh, going out and attacking an attacker's DNA. Yeah, um, exactly. So people, there have been cell culture experiments doing what you described, taking like a million cell culture and then having the CRISPR against a sort of like invading virus. But no one mm. has, as far as I'm aware, put that inside like a mouse and show that now the mouse is resistant. But honestly, I think it would work. It's the question of, is it going to be safe over the long term of the animal? So certainly it would make the animal resistant to that virus. But once again, because if Cas9 has got to be really specific, it can only cut that virus that's coming in, and it can't cut its own genome. But remember, the mammalian genome is like three billion bases large, and the right. viral genome is you know somewhere between like about four thousand and a hundred thousand base pairs. And so there's a lot more mammalian genome hanging out that might be attractive for Cas9 than the viral genome. In addition, the Cas9 is in there all the time. It's always hanging out. It's always hungry looking. So it has to be pretty darn good. Make sure it's only going to be active when you want it to be active. Could we create a new um, family of vaccines, you know, if we used um, CRISPR to cut up the DNA of various um, viruses that we're concerned about and take those fragments and, um, you know, put them into, let's, you know, starting with the animal models to see if the animal can create a defense to it? Are you are you talking about so are you are you using the CRISPR system for the animal to have the defense? Or are you just saying you want to use CRISPR to somehow shred the viral genome to then immunize people? Yes, the second one. Yep. 
Oh, I mean, you don't need CRISPR to do that. You can just do that, essentially. Like, CRISPR would be a really fancy way to do that experiment. Oh, there's no benefit to it. Okay. Yeah, there's no benefit. I mean, basically, the what you're sort of describing is um, sometimes we'll do is we'll, t like, purify a protein from a virus, and then we'll um, use that. We'll purify that protein, inject it into patients in the presence of an adjuvant to stimulate their immune system, and the immune system will just kind of automatically say, oh, this is a protein that's kind of nasty. I'm going to target you. And that's been done for, like, I don't know, since Jenner and vaccination, essentially, like, you know, for a while. I guess the protein purification part, not, but the general concept has been done for a long time. Okay. Um, would, would CRISPR be um, useful for then versus not useful for? What What is it uniquely good at doing that we can't do right now? Yeah, so I think what's, what made CRISPR so exciting is that it was highly targetable. So if we think about restriction enzymes, um, kind of like the, the other guys like to target and cut DNA. The problem is they have a very defined sequence. So restriction enzyme one is only going to cut A, 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 A. That's all it's cutting. That's all it's ever going to cut, right? But if you have a sequence that's A, T, A, 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 it's not cutting that. The great thing about CRISPR is you can target it to anything you want, essentially anything you want. And that makes it very powerful. And that's what actually makes this like great, flexible precision tool that people love. So what are, um, what are some... Um viruses that are specifically being targeted or genes that are specifically being targeted? Uh, I mean, so in the, in the research setting, essentially every gene is being targeted by CRISPR because people want to understand, you know, you have 20,000 genes in your the human genome. What do all of them do? Um, and mm. basically until CRISPR, there's no real way to, at high specificity, selectively turn off one single gene and say, what happens? Now, now turn off the next gene, what happens? So on and so forth. And CRISPR has really kind of opened that possibility up. So that's really why it's so awesome. There are cl certain clinical applications also, like the HIV CCR5 one we talked about. Um, but, you know, in, in the basic research realm, I mean, that's where it's really just been an amazing. Yeah, so what, I mean, what kinds of uh, amazing things have been done with CRISPR so far? Or are we, are we just marching through the genome to, to find, um, you know, what yeah. the functions of all the genes are? I mean, it's sort of like whatever you're interested in. So people have taken tumor cells and they've basically knocked out every single gene from the tumor cells and said, hey, what do these genes, what does this tumor need to grow? All right, here are all the genes the tumor needs to grow. Now, are there any drugs against these genes? Oh, great. This gene here, CRISPR told me the cell needs to grow and I have a drug against it. Let me treat the cancer cell with a drug. Oh, the cancer cell dies. Very fast way to figure out what the cancer is dependent upon. Um, there are other examples where people have, um, in the case of like bacteria, they want to understand you know, what genes are required to make this bacteria grow better, faster, resistant to a certain condition. In that, those cases, it's because the bacteria are producing something useful for you. So once again, CRISPR can do those sort of tools, that sort of tricks. Um, it's sort of like kind of anything you really want to know, CRISPR is going to probably help you do it. So what's the specific focus of, uh, of your research then? What are you looking to do with it? Yeah, so in general, we're kind of tool builders. So... Um, we spent a lot of time, so CRISPR is really good at cutting genes and turning them off, um, but there wasn't really a good way to use CRISPR to turn genes on. And so, because, um, you know, you, you both want to look at what happens when the gene is totally disabled and what happens when you just express a little bit of that gene. I mean, those give you kind of like two different pictures of what that gene's doing. And so when we first started our work, there really weren't any really good tools at doing that. And so our lab was kind of one of the first labs to build a really powerful tool that would let you use CRISPR to turn genes on. And we've been using it to do things like understanding what Transcription factors are required for stem cells to become different cell types in the body, um, using it to understand uh, what genes cause uh, blood cancer cells to become resistant to standard therapy. So, you know, what are the genes that actually cause that resistance? You know, if we understand them, we can figure out their mechanism of action. Um, and so by using this tool, it's been a kind of like a, 
it just kind of like a little cash cow. It produces all these cool other experiments that we've been kind of pursuing over the late years. Hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, where do you see this? Uh, this you, okay, so it's a great discovery mechanism. Um, any particular focuses of the research on CRISPR that uh, you think you're going to have, like, I don't know, just really outsized uh, results that you're not working on personally, but other labs are? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that's uh, of interest is can you use CRISPR or some system like it to actually detect mutations in vivo, right? So imagine I have a patient and they have a tumor. Um, there's no way to, uh, like, there's no system that could be inside of a person or an animal that can literally just, like, hang out and do nothing. But when the person gets a mutation in a given cell that you think might turn into cancer, the cell sort of flags itself and says, hey, I have this really bad mutation in me. Someone should do something. And I think people are interested in seeing if you can use CRISPR-type tools to actually be like an in vivo detection system, sort of like a smoke alarm, essentially, where if certain mutations happen, it kind of raises a flag and says, hey, this cell is kind of bad. Um, not only would that be really, I mean, this is obviously talking like really futuristic here. I mean, this would be quite a while, a while away, but also be a really great basic research tool. Right? Imagine you have an animal and you can literally then track when a cell starts to gain mutations that will make it form a cancer. And you can literally track that cell divide and divide and divide over time from the initial kind of inception point, which is becoming bad. So I think that's pretty cool. Well, how, okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I would, I mean, how could you solve that problem? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's the thing. How would something like that take up, I mean, would that be injected into the body to look at a particular time or would it sit resident in, in an organism for a period of time? Yeah, I mean, so if we're getting, if we're, once again, if we're going out into sci-fi realm, right, um, you could imagine it could, it would actually be embedded in the genome at the initial, like, one cell stage, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, initial one cell stage, this system is already in the genome, and it's hanging out, and it's surveying. Um, clearly, that's, uh, I mean, it's against all current rules and ethics, so it's not like it's going to happen anytime soon. It's also technically very challenging, but, you know, do I think we can make simple uh, cell models that can kind of do this? Yes. Uh, one of the things that we actually did which I think is kind of one of our cooler projects is we designed a use of CRISPR where, so it was in bacteria, but we basically put it that CRISPR in the bacteria would detect when a mutation happened that we didn't want it, the cells to get, and it would basically destroy those mutant alleles. So whenever the bacterial cell got a certain mutation that would make it resistant to an antibiotic, basically the CRISPR would come and it would cut those guys, those alleles and prevent the cells from getting that resistance mutation. And so I think that's our, our work is kind of one of the, towards like towards this idea, but it wasn't able to like report that, hey, this cell is bad. Our thing could only basically say, this, I don't want this, I'm gonna kill it. Mm -hmm. Are there um, certain types of, uh, again, CRISPR comes from various uh, bacteria. Are there different kinds that you're using or are you using the same CRISPR and it works well enough and it comes from you know, bacteria X and that's just fine? Yeah, so I think strep pyogenes is kind of a classic Cas9 molecule that people use um, and it's, it's really the most efficient one. And so we've kind of just stuck to that one. There's lots of other variants out there um, but really, what's called SPCAS9 is kind of the best, and it really is kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Um, so we do most of our engineering with that one, and so does the rest of the world, frankly. Mm, okay. Are there other ones that people have discovered that are particularly useful? Uh, so there's, there's, so SPCAS9, it's a little bit of a large gene, and so there's a smaller uh, gene, uh, Cas9 variant out there called SACAS9. It comes from Staph aureus. Um, that one is kind of nice because if you need to deliver it to tissues using a certain type of virus, um, it's kind of easier to do that delivery with it. Um, outside of that, there's some other Cas9 variants that have different uh, patterns, how they cut their DNA, 
You have different sorts of specificities for certain sequences over others. Um, so there's certainly, it's kind of like there's different crayon colors of Cas9. And so depending mm. on what you really need to do, you can probably find one that might be a little bit more specific for your need. But in general, uh, you know, there's kind of one main one that most people use because it's kind of like, it's like, I don't know if you ever played Mario 2, man. Uh, so in Mario 2, there's basically four characters mm. you can pick from. One of them can jump really high. One of them is like really fast. The other can kind of float right. for a bit. And then there's Mario. Mario doesn't jump that high, doesn't run that fast, doesn't float, but he's kind of like in the middle. Like the, the conventional mm. one people use is kind of in the middle. So what, um, any other amazing uh, things that bacteria do, um, you know, with CRISPR that we haven't been able to use, to do yet using CRISPR? I mean, so there's there's work happening now with this whole system where, you know, CRISPR, CRISPR is used and it, uh, the way CRISPR works, right, is it takes pieces of foreign DNA and it inserts it into this little locus and then it uses that in its defense system. And so one thing that's kind of cool about that is this whole idea of like capturing foreign DNA and then inserting it into your genome. And so people are starting to use that actually as a way to record events. So um, essentially what's happening is that CRISPR is essentially making like a physical copy of an event in its genome, right? This virus came in, it takes a piece of it, it shoves it in its genome, and then forever and ever that piece is going to be in its genome. Well, not forever and ever, but for a long time. And so now if another phage comes in, it's actually going to take a piece from him and once again shove it into its genome. And actually what happens is that the way that the little pieces of DNA that CRISPR takes get inserted, they're inserted in order. So you kind of know who was the first one that came and who was the next one that came. And so that's sort of like a really cool recording device. And so people are interested, can I like harvest that in other settings to actually make like some sort of in vivo recorder? I think that's pretty cool. But that work is still like pretty preliminary. People have gotten it to work in bacteria, these concepts, but like how do you implement it in a live animal? Um, tricky. So you possibly could know um, all the times that an organism has been attacked and the sure. order in which? Yeah. I mean, you could even know something like, I mean, so we're, one thing we're focusing very much on virus infection, but you actually can tweak these systems to make them record like how many times the neuron fired, how many times this liver cell was probed by this macrophage, you know, how many times this kidney cell experienced uh, low oxygen levels. Like once you can get that, that little piece of recorder to work, you can kind of tweak it to whatever you want. And that would be incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that would be crazy. Once again, a little bit, we're talking future tech here, right? So this is future right, tech. Right, yeah. yeah. What about, um, the, you know, the, the problem of antibiotic resistance? Uh, can we use CRISPR to help head that off and find uh, better antibiotics or maybe even phages themselves to attack the uh, the viruses that attack us? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, all the things you're describing are sort of like active areas of discovery. So uh, phage therapy is kind of making a comeback. So, you know, there's these, there's these viruses that uh, like to attack bacteria. Can we just harvest a whole bunch of those and use those as therapeutics? Uh, the answer is like, is, is yes. And so people are, it's kind of, it fell out of vogue like 40 years ago, but it's coming back because it's kind of a cool solution to the problem. And they they can be very effective. The problem with phage is that phage tend to have very high specificity, as in they will just infect this one bacteria, and even of this bacteria, only certain isolates of it, right? So if you got a patient that's dying on you, can you really risk the question of if this phage is really going to work on that bacteria? And so that's something that people are trying to solve with cocktails of phages to be able to cover hopefully like most of the isolates, most of the different strains from that species. Um, as far as using CRISPR as an antibacterial. Um, there's a whole set of, there's some papers where people basically used CRISPR. So, uh, you know, CRISPR basically is, can be programmed to target certain DNA sequences. And so you can imagine having CRISPR target the DNA sequence of, let's say, Staph aureus, a nasty bacteria. 
You could then package CRISPR into things like phages, and you could just dump a bunch of that onto a patient or an area that you want to sterilize, let's say, and CRISPR would then get into those cells. And if it was a staph genome, it would then cut it. And if staph genomes cut, it's not going to be too happy, and so they'll die. They're also trying to use it to, let's say, um, because when you do something like that, there's a very strong selective pressure. So basically, you know, if you have a phage that's against staph, and you throw that phage on mm-hmm. a whole bunch of staph, basically any staph that's resistant to that phage is going to quickly take over. And so that's going to be like quite a strong selection pressure for you. So maybe one thing to do is let's not just let's not kill the staph. Let's just kill the things in staph that make them nasty to us, right? So these things called pathogenicity islands that kind of make these, a lot of times make these microbes nasty. Let's have Cas9 just cut that. Because a lot of times those pathogenicity islands are not directly in the bacterial's genome. They're on like an accessory piece of their genome. So if you cut it, the bacteria loses that accessory piece, but they stay alive. So now the selection pressure is not as strong to enrich for this like really nasty resistant guy. And so maybe that's a way to mm-hmm. cause, you know, people to be able to have a, this antibiotic resistance problem. You can also use CRISPR to do antibiotic discovery. So basically the question is there's uh, we want new antibiotics. There's all these genes out there in the environment. How do we actually identify the genes that we want? And once we identify them, how do we pull them out from, from like wild samples of essentially like nucleic acids? And you can use CRISPR to help you do those sort of things. Hmm. Amazing. It seems like CRISPR has created a ton of work for scientists around the world, but it has uh, amazing possibilities as well. Yeah, it's, it's it's really it's it's amazing tool right it's just like PCR it's it's become sort of transformative and if, I think the applications are just gonna get crazier and crazier frankly. Yeah, so what um where are you headed with your particular research over the next you know few years? Yeah, so we're doing a little bit of CRISPR stuff. Um, like I said, we're continuing to kind of apply our activators. We recently built a CRISPR repressor, so instead of just cutting the gene and totally disabling it, we just want to decrease the expression of the gene a little bit. Um, and that's important because some genes in your cells are essential. So basically, without this gene, the cell kind of dies. And so you can't really study what the gene is doing if all that's happening is basically the cell dies. And so a repressor lets you kind of just lower the levels a little bit. So cell's not dead, but now lets you kind of see, okay, what's this gene doing? Why is it so important? So we're kind of now starting to do some experiments looking uh, with our new repressor to try to understand kind of gene function. Um, we are actually interested in this idea of using Cas9 to detect mutations in vivo. I think it's going to be a hard problem. I think we're even at the beginning of like on the whiteboard trying to figure out how to solve it. Um, and then in general, we're actually kind of just uh, not necessarily doing a ton more with CRISPR, just more trying to like use it in applications to understand biology. So my lab is getting an interest in both neurodegenerative diseases. So these are diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, and then also in cancer. And so basically CRISPR is this amazing tool. How can we use them to understand the fundamental biology behind these diseases. Have you seen that, um, you know, Cas9 can live inside an organism's uh, DNA without causing trouble? You you live there peacefully and just uh, divide along with the cells and and exist? So there is a mouse that expresses Cas9 in its tissues. And as far as I know, that mouse doesn't actually have any nasty phenotypes. Um, But that mouse is, you know, mice live, what, two years, three years at most. Mm. Um, They don't live hopefully 80-some years as a human does. In addition, um, in the case of that mouse, they haven't provided it the targeting sequence that Cas9 needs. So it just expresses the protein itself without the targeting sequence. And we know that Cas9 doesn't really do much without the targeting sequence present. So, you know, the jury is still out for what would happen if you grew up that animal with, let's say, uh, the targeting the targeting helper guy throughout its whole life. Um, people have certainly made like animals like flies and worms and, you know, yeast where the Cas9 has its targeting sequence, and those cells overall 
you know, they look okay, but there's certainly some cases where the flies turn out looking really bad because the cast line is kind of going a little bit ham. Yeah. What does it do when it, it makes, you know, when it acts up, what does it do? What, what problems does it cause? Well, so that all the people, people only observe the final phenotype, which is essentially like death and or just like gross dysmorphic features on the fly. So imagine like a fly with no eyes sort of thing, right? So you're stressing Cas9 in all the eye cells with the targeting sequence, and now the fly has no eyes. It's probably not the phenotype you're looking for. So it tells you that it's probably going and doing something really nasty, either cutting a bunch of sites or cutting the genome at a point where the cells are hypersensitive to that cut. Um, and so, you know, those are things that I'm sure we'll be able to work out. People have sort of tackled that problem by just decreasing the expression of Cas9. People think helps a lot. Um, but once again, you know, these are animals that live 40 days and don't really get cancer, which is kind of really the effect what you're really worried about with things like Cas9 in a mammalian organism. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, very good. Um, there's a lot to know. I'm not even great at expressing it. You know, my, my uh, CRISPR-Cas9 uh, usefulness expression gene is not working. So um, what, <laughs> what's, the best way, <laughs> what's the best way for folks to learn more and to, to dive into this world and see all the possibilities? Hmm. Any resources? You know, I I guess I have to say, honestly, like Wikipedia is an amazing resource. I guess it's, it's like the most generic answer ever, but it's really true. Um, you know, sometimes I'm looking on Wikipedia, like I'm a scientist, right? And when I learn about another field, Wikipedia is usually a really nice way to kind of get started. If you're a little bit more serious, then you probably want to go into PubMed and look, actually like read the primary literature on Cas9. Um, you know, if you're a scientist already and you want to work with Cas9, frankly, nowadays there's so many people doing it that you're the lab next door probably has some expertise. So you can just kind of go find them. And uh, mm. there's even forums online where people like share CRISPR tricks. So it's become quite like prevalent in the field. Maybe like CRISPR home baking recipes and all that pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's <laughs> protocols, right? Like, how do you knock this gene out using CRISPR? Oh, you know, I tried this and it didn't work. Oh, well, Bob, you have to try, you know, to do this and this. I did this and it worked better. Yeah, in general, people yeah. tend to be really helpful. And I think people want to help. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and thanks so much. No problem, man. All right, have a good day. You've been listening to Almost Here. Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.